Hi, everybody. This is Kevin O'Donoghue, licensed mental health counselor. And I'm Nasima Diandimer, licensed massage therapist and trauma specialist. And this is The Positive Mind. Where we bring you some ideas, concepts, and guests to help you lead a more positively-minded life. So here's a concept. Fathers, kiss your sons. And should you? Should fathers kiss their sons? If you listening out there, how do you react to that question? Should fathers list... Uh, kiss their sons. You know, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, there was an article by John Pavlowitz, fathers should kiss their sons. You know, there are some sons who have never been kissed or even touched by their fathers. Is there some magic that happens when fathers touch their sons in a nice and a healthy way? How about other cultures? Do fathers in other cultures touch their sons, kiss their sons? What cultures kind of promote that and allow that? And why, if we don't do it here in America, why don't we? Do you think boys are touch-deprived in our culture in a healthy way? I mean, football is a big thing in America for American boys, but that's not the kind of touch we're talking about. So I asked this question in, in preparation for our guest today. We have a guest, Dr. Warren Farrell, who's written a book called The Boy Crisis. Let's see. The boy crisis. Why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. And I think the first question I do want to ask Dr. Farrell in his very rich book here is, are boys touch deprived in our culture? What does that look like? Why is that? And if so, what is the damage or is there damage being done? And what, we, what can we do to remedy that? Dr. Farrell, I want to welcome you to The Positive Mind. How are you today? I'm very well. Looking very forward to talking with you. I, I really enjoyed our pre-show uh, discussion. So, uh, you know, in your book, you talk about like some remedies, some things boys and fathers can do together that can sort of remedy some of the problems that are coming up uh, in our culture for boys. And I wanted to go right there because it was such a nice and enlightening par- uh, chapter on roughhousing, that boys and their fathers can do something that mothers and their fathers don't do. And that this concept, I remember it very well in my childhood, probably the most intimate moments with my dad were through some kind of roughhousing, some kind of physical touch. So this chapter really resonated with me, and I wanted to put it out there at the beginning of our show, because a lot of what you do in the book is talk about what we're missing but I wanted to give our listeners a a picture on something that they probably already know on some level, that father-son touch and bonding is really important and that this roughhousing concept is really nourishing and nurturing for for a boy. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, roughhousing is is just one of many examples of uh, the differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting. Um, dad style parenting um, usually involves things like roughhousing, like teasing, uh, like taking, um, you know, uh, yes, son, you can climb the tree, uh, just be careful. Uh, whereas mom might say, oh, oh, you know, uh, my goodness, that tree is much too high for, you know, for you to climb now, maybe in a few years, sweetie, but not now. And, um, and so there's some really important, this, this is important because it's so the children that do best are ones that have what I call checks and balance parenting. Uh, where both the father and the mother have an understanding of the value of the style that tends to be different between dads and moms. And so you were talking about roughhousing. So I'll I'll give that as an example. Uh, So for example, 
in a lot of homes, not all homes, and sometimes this is reversed um, in terms of roles, um, the, the dad is more likely to say, let's say he has three children, and he takes the three children and he tosses them on the couch and says, okay, your job is to jump on my back and pin me down before I can pin all three of you down together. And mom's looking on and going, oh no, um, th right. this is this is going to be dangerous here. Um, but on the other hand, the kids look like they're going to have fun. They want to do this. I don't want to be controlling. Um, and but on, But I just sense, intuitively I sense, that sooner or later, somebody's going, to get, somebody's going to get hurt. Well, mom is only about 99% likely to be right. Um, and it's sort of right. sooner or later, somebody does get hurt. And so mom is feeling, now mom has a different feeling. And she's saying to herself, you know, uh, I, I think I, sh I feel guilty that I didn't interfere and prevent the kids from, look at, Jane is crying. I could have prevented that if I just followed my intuition. Why didn't I get involved? So she's feeling badly. Um, and dad is, of course, not happy that, the, you know, the, the children got hurt, but he's not unhappy happy either. And he says to his son, um, you can win at roughhousing in lots of different ways, like giving fake eye contact and fooling me, or give it, using leverage or putting this foot here or that arm there, but you can't put your elbow in your sister's face. And if you do that again, there'll be no more roughhousing for tonight. Oh, all right. Don't worry, dad. No problem. Um, and the kids all agree. And so now the kids are experiencing emotional intelligence under fire. They've made an agreement that they won't be um, inconsiderate um, of their, their sisters and brothers' needs. But as soon as they get super excited, that agreement is only intellectual and it fades away or goes down the drain as if it was never said. And so the kids... Um, go back to the roughhousing and sure enough, they, you know, somebody just uh, is aggressive rather than assertive. And so dad stops the roughhousing and says, no, I said, you couldn't be uh, aggressive, not assertive. Oh, dad, you said you couldn't put, we couldn't put the elbow in my, in my, in, in Jane's eye. That's I was, I didn't do that again. Uh, no, he, the, what you did is too aggressive. You know that. Um, and here's what assertive means. Oh, all right. All right, dad. That's okay. Well, we won't do that again. Nope. I'm sorry. Um, no more roughhousing tonight. Now mom's looking at this and going, excuse me. I thought at least when Jane started crying that you would know enough to not do more roughhousing with them because it's only going to end up in crying. And now that's happened twice and you are, um, and then you are rescheduling roughhousing for tomorrow night. Right. You haven't learned your lesson. Yes, I do have just one more child to monitor. Um, and so dad, is, you know, mom's really like super upset and dad, uh, and, and dad doesn't explain to mom what is really going on here? Because most dads don't know. They just unwittingly do this. Uh, so I'll share what's going on. The next night, what's happened now is that dad and the children have all created a bond. That bond makes the children want to do what dad says. Not so much for any reason, except for the fact that they can get more roughhousing out of him. <laughs> and, right. and, 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 and get closer to him. Get, and get close yeah, to him. They have, they have plenty of um, you know, joy in this, and there's fun. And it's the most exciting part of the day, the part they listen to. One of the reasons they go up and hug him. And so now, but they, and that gives them, that bond gives them an incentive to hear what dad is saying about the distinction between being aggressive versus assertive and being empathetic, that is thinking about their sisters and brothers' feelings. 
a dad has never told me, you know, I told mom that I want to, um, I want to roughhouse with the children because I want to make them more empathetic. <laughs> That's sort of, I want them to learn boundaries. <laughs> I want them to learn boundaries. I want them to understand the difference between being assertive and aggressive. So continuing with the story, the next night, the children go back. And now he says, you can't put your fingers in your, you know, all the same rules again. But this time, as the children are roughhousing, they're realizing because last night, dad stopped the roughhousing when, when the children were aggressive and when they didn't think of each other, they know now that they really have to obey the rules or they're going to lose what they want. So what they're learning is not just the difference between being assertive and aggressive, not just being empathetic, that is, thinking about their sister's and brother's needs, not just their own, but they're also learning postponed gratification. And postponed gratification is the single biggest differentiator between becoming successful and not becoming successful, and therefore feeling good about yourself in a lot of ways. And so the children are feeling inside of themselves like, I still want to push my brother or my sister out of the way. I still want to just put that elbow in, in his or her eye without worrying about it. But I don't. I can't get what I want unless I think of somebody else's needs. And I also know that, that difference between being assertive. And so I have to postpone what I want to do. Do, uh, which is just pushing him or her out of the way to get what I really uh, want, which is the roughhousing. And so now that she or he has learned postponed gratification and had the difference between being assertive and aggressive, here's where the big payoff comes in. They go to school, they start playing with their friends, and they understand the difference between being assertive and aggressive. Now, mom explained the difference between being assertive and aggressive, but she didn't develop that type of bond and she didn't uh, with them on, the, on that type of assertive aggressive level, she developed different types of bonds. And so the children, when, it, when they got into that emotional intelligence under fire situation, often forgot about it. And then they became aggressive with the people that they were playing with and, the, and, the, and their friends became less and less. They weren't as empathetic. So their friends became less and less. People who are playing with your son and daughter, they want, they want to play with kids that think of their feelings as well. But something else is going on, which is the postponed gratification part. The children who have the postponed gratification, they're doing a homework and a text comes in. The, the ones without postponed gratification are going to respond to the text and re, you know, play the video game or do whatever happens and not finish the homework. The ones with postponed gratification know I've got to finish the homework first. Let's say the child has a great gift in singing or music or dancing or acting or in a sport. Well, all those things are gifts. They can be gifts that the child has, but they also take discipline to become the best at those things. And so, so the, the person um, planning to be a gymnast um, has to have that discipline to do that. And so the ones with the discipline and the ability to get along with others, they become engaged in school, they become successful. They start getting good feedback from their teachers. And when it comes to boy-girl time for boys, boys quickly pick up that girls don't want to date losers. They want to date people who are able to accomplish things. They want to date performers. They, they may like a sensitive guy to talk to or, or a gay guy to talk to, but they don't want a guy that doesn't perform to talk to. So I'm so glad we started our show with this. I mean, there is so much going on, Dr. Farrell, I think, in this roughhousing. Uh, one thing is I learned that I'm separate from somebody else. Learning this at an early age, five, six, seven, that somebody 
as outside of me, a sister or a brother. And then when you go to the schoolyard, people in the schoolyard. And that I get a sense of what is safe and what is unsafe because I've been exposed to it myself. Somebody has come too close. The brother has used his elbow. You know, I was tempted to say when we were kids, we would say, well, she only lost one eye. She's got another one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so, but I mean, that's how important it was for us to keep roughhousing, to have this fun with each other. And I think subconsciously, when I did get to the schoolyard, I knew the difference between violence and and really harsh touch and really gentle and knowing touch. Play and roughhousing are a big part of developing the social engagement nervous system, which we've talked about as well. Mm -hmm. There's this capacity to sort of read what's the situation. Is this a dangerous situation or a playful situation? And you need Mm -hmm. to be able to discern that in order to engage with any gendered person. You know, it's like, it's like to know those cues to, um, to be able to push a little bit, but know, you know, if it comes back that that was wrong, that you're able to adjust. Absolutely. And these are things that cannot be explained in, in words. And in words, they don't translate into action and feelings, like, and they don't tra- translate into the, the nervous system thing. In fact, in words, uh, when you're saying these things like, and mom will say these things, she'll say, you know, don't be too aggressive, think of somebody else. And um, she, th- there's zero disagreement between mom and dad on these issues. It would be wonderful for Mother Roughhouse and, and to understand, but we have to understand that moms can't hear what dads don't say and dads can't say what dads don't learn. And so I started to examine when I was doing the research for the boy crisis, I started examining all the parenting magazines and I found these types of differences, dad style parenting and mom style parenting and the difference and the value of dad style parenting was nowhere. There was a lot of understanding of the value of mom style parenting. So even those small percentages of dads um, who do read parenting magazines? They can't say what they haven't read, they haven't learned, and so I began to, you know, put in the boy crisis book, a what the different styles were, but b an exp- a way that dad could explain to mom the positive value of like what Nasima was just saying about reprogramming the uh, your system, uh, your social system, so that that mom can see that there's not just one more child that she has to monitor, but rather there is a different, a, an adult with a different sensibility that is taking a, a, a responsible role in the parenting process and that he is needed. That, that he is needed, I've sort of said very carefully because men do what they are told they are needed to do. Um, every generation had its war. And in every war, we said, Uncle Sam needs you or some version of that. We will be under Nazi rule if, if, we don't, if you aren't willing to die for us. So men who are told they are needed are willing to die to fill the need. Part of masculinity was learning to be disposable, um, disposable in war or disposable in work, whether it's the hazardous jobs, 93% of the people who die in hazardous jobs are males. Um, and people who die, who die from overwork, try to become corporate executives and become drinking and so on are males. It's important for moms to know this so that they can tell dad, I don't only not just think of you as a child, I need you. So doctor, one of the things that's occurring to me as you're talking is kind of what seems like a revolution in roles for males 
in in this post twentieth and early twenty first century that we've had to redefine uh, males' roles now that we don't have to go out and conquer the world. Let's say. Uh, mm-hmm. And that men had done that, let's say, for previous centuries that, you know, they had an external foe that they had to go out and defeat. When men came back from the war and World War Two, you know, they built a country, you know, industries and everything. And that since, let's say, the 50s, late uh, early 60s, that some kind of revolution has gone on that men and our culture has internalized. OK, we do have different roles now. And that there's this friction between the history of males and this evolution now of a new male identity, a new way of being male, a new way of raising children, a new way of being a father. And I wonder if you could comment on that and how we're still fighting some old ghosts, let's say, like unconscious messages that males are still receiving in the media, on commercials, from women, in their work world, etc. But we're headed in a good direction, I think. I just want you to comment on that for me. In the Boy Crisis book, I explain this sort of in a, in a broad macro type of way and then zero down. But let me start with the zeroing down. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with my, my own personal life. When I was um, in high school, it was apparent that uh, my family and teachers felt that um, I had a little bit of a a gift for writing. And so I started picking up on that and um, and instead of pursuing writing. And my father then started getting worried. And he said, you know, Warren, only about one in a hundred writers find publishers. And if you can't find a publisher, you'll never find a wife. Um, And if you can't, uh, and even if you do find a publisher, you know, the average, he researched it, and the average person, the average um, um, author only makes about $5,000 a year. You can't support a wife, and you can't support a child- children on $5,000 a year. So you're really being irresponsible by thinking, even thinking about going into writing. Uh, well, I eventually sort of betrayed that and went into <laughs> writing. Right. Um, and so, and then my first book came out. And my father felt, well, you know, you still can't depend on that. You know, writers, sometimes they score big and sometimes they go down. And I had gotten involved with the women's movement. And um, and then I started to uh, find that my speeches um, were getting standing ovations. But a year or two later, when I go back to the same place that I had spoken at, and I really pursued questioning the people that I was had spoken to about what they really, you know, did your life change in any way as a result of my speaking? Did you gain any real insights that you retained? And, you know, I really can't, couldn't say that they did. So I started creating these uh, role reversal dates and men's beauty contests to get men to understand what women's lives was, were like and women to understand what men's lives were like. And they were really helpful. However, they still didn't, um, you know, they didn't work at every level. And so I began to develop couples communication courses that really were, were helpful and supplementary, supplementary to that. And so my father came out to visit me um, in California when I moved out to California. And we're together for three days. And for three days, he says, he asked me nothing about myself. He's just talking about other self or, you know, stories, et cetera. And so I said after three days, you know, dad, we've been together three days and you haven't asked me a single question about myself. Long pause. Mm. Well, Warren, I want to keep our relationship positive. So asking me about me would keep our relationship negative, make it negative. 
And he goes, long pause again. And I said, dad, what's going on here? And he said, well, you know, you've been teaching people all these things and all these workshops in psychology. And I think you've been ruining the lives of millions of people. And so I said, how's that? And he goes, psychology teaches people to think about doing what they want to do. Being a man is not doing what you want to do, Warren. That's selfish. Being a man is doing what you need to do, what you have to do, and not asking about what you want to do. Because when you find out what you want to do, it begins to undermine your your the, the, the strength that you need to do what you need to do. So it's really healthier to not ask the question, to not build false expectations. And I fear, Warren, you're building false expectations in people by letting them do what they want to do. So I tried to think about that, even though I argued with him at the time. And about about three or four months later, I came back to him and I said, Dad, I'd like to share something with you. Your generation, I'll, you worked so hard. You met the middle and upper middle class, like you're the middle class and working class. You mastered, you mastered enough survival. So you gave us a good home in a, in a reasonably good neighborhood and a re- reasonably good school district. And for the first time in history, your generation did the hard work that gave us the freedom to be able to ask the question, what do I want to do? And so I'm asking this mostly for women now, because I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. I was completely involved in women's issues, but I'm beginning to also ask that for myself too. And you know, the, the fact that I, that I married a woman and helped support her to become very successful is giving me freedom to not have to support her and me and all the children that we may or may not have and are preparing for that. And so that was the first time that his energy changed because he felt I had thought through responsibility and incorporated responsibility with desire and with, uh, with choice. So for the first time in human history, we have created in the middle class and upper middle class and developed nations, the ability for the sons and daughters to ask what they want to do. However, we've done a great job with that during the last 50 years with girls and women. We haven't done a great job of that with boys and men. We've told boys and men, you have the power as, and you are privileged, as opposed to saying, thank you for giving up your power by dying in war. Thank you for when we had children giving up doing what you wanted to do um, and, st- uh, and, and quit that musician gig that you did or that artist gig or that dream of writing the great American novel. Mm-hmm. And you did something that you really needed to do like sell product X locally. And then when we had the third child locally wasn't giving you enough money. So you sold product X nationally. And, and the statistics says you were earning more money than women, but you were earning more money because you were experiencing the father's catch 22, the father's catch 22 being that you learned to love the family by being away from the love of the, your family. And you felt lonely and you felt isolated and you felt when you came home, you didn't, uh, you didn't have that same connection that the mom had because you were paying mom to love where you were expected to disconnect from love. And I know in one of your chapters, you, you are, it's called loving in the balance. 
Yes. And that men are losing or having no access, let's say, to their loving, and their boys are losing a sense of access to loving, and that this doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. There is a way to keep love alive, let's say, you know, to keep a sense of uh, connection to people, to your loved ones, and not just be a moneymaker, not just be the career man. Yes. Not just to sell your dreams so that you can just pay the rent. I'm curious um, if you're noticing just in this time of a pandemic where most men are now working from home, men and women are working from home. I wonder if this is maybe um, a little cauldron in which we can start sort of brewing a new way for men to be involved in their families. Because I think they're probably finally home more and I, I have a feeling it, like something might be shifting here. I think you're right. I think for the first time in history, because of this uh, COVID, we're discovering the children and the dad are seeing dads become addicted to children. Their brains change when they are connecting with children. One of the things I discovered in doing the research for the boy crisis was that, that, that males have a fathering instinct that is dormant. Um, and the uh, and that as they get involved with a child um, on a deeper level and feel that their love is valued, not just their money is valued, the um, the neurons, uh, a nest of neurons that are dormant, uh, start connecting with each other, and the um, and that you have sort of the equivalent of a mother instinct in the father, oh, but only if the father's experience is of, of having children is to become involved with the children. If the father's experience of having children is that there's more pressure on me to sell product X nationwide, and I have to be away from home most of the time, then those neurons do not develop. Um, you, in fact, the opposite experience happens. There's sort of a, t- a tear inside of the man, the man. He's learning to love the children by being away from the love of the children. So on the one hand, he's learning to do things at work um, that really are, you know, that are tough and uh, experiences. He listens differently at work and he learns a series of things to be successful at work that are exactly in tension with and sometimes the opposite of what it takes to be in love at home. So for example, um, if at work, if he wants to, if he's climbing toward becoming a CEO, it helps when uh, a sales representative is talking and wants to sell him something that he says, all right, um, as the sales representative is talking, he's thinking inside of his mind, okay, I think, it, is this the best representative I have? What's lies, what's truth here? Um, you know, And he starts cross-examining the sales representative on that level. And then he starts thinking in this back of his mind, uh, can I, if I do believe the sales representative, uh, what should, I, how can I integrate this into my Chinese market? How can I integrate this into the um, North American market, et cetera? Right. Now he takes that same, and that's a sign of a good CEO. But he takes that same um, skill set home and his wife or children start talking to him and he starts thinking of other things while they're talking, thinking of solutions to their problem. He thinks he's helping his wife because he's solving her problem for her or or asking questions or cross-examining her. She just doesn't feel heard. The children don't feel heard. And so the children become more connected to their girlfriends and boyfriends um, or to video games where they don't have to worry about any of that and they don't feel loved. So here he's working all day to love his children 
right. but learning skill sets to be successful that are taking him away from the love of his children. But no one understands this. We're going to take a musical break. You've been listening to Dr. Warren Farrell, whose book, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It, is featured here on our show. We are The Positive Mind. I am Kevin O'Donohue. And I'm Nasima Dayandina. And we will be right back. are back. This is The Positive Mind. I'm Kevin O'Donohue here with Nasima Diane Diemer and Dr. Warren Farrell. I was wondering about with this COVID crisis, like like Kevin mentioned, this friction between a historical way of being a man and like this new way. And it's like a new, new way during COVID. They're like right there in the thick of it now and trying to work and trying to teach their kid math and all those things. Yes. And the difference, you know, mothers have always juggled and, you know, and been <laughs> pulled, pulled in many different directions, sometimes by their own choice, sometimes by necessity. Um, but the, when, when fathers are home, something I was mentioning before, that their brain starts to change. They start becoming engaged with their children in a, in a way that roughhousing they have more time for. In COVID, um, they, they, we, they create taking the kids out camping and, um, and wandering through uh, the woods to a lake and being much more willing to have the kids take risks of walking way out in front, as opposed to just be with them all the time. And so the kids learn to explore, but something else is also happening. The dad's brain is changing, like I was mentioning before, and the dad and the children and the mom are all seeing the value of dad's time, not just dad's dime. Oh, that's and a great that phrase. that is so mm-hmm. important because what the data shows is that once a family of four ha- or less has has enough money that makes somewhere between fifty and eighty thousand a year, depending on where in the United States you live, um, once that fifty to eighty thousand uh, dollars a year mark of total income for a family is brought in, the the health and happiness of the family is very becomes. In- decreasingly dependent on money and increasingly dependent on the time and the connection. So uh, what is so important for mothers and fathers to hear is that if you're, you know, if your bathroom isn't designed perfectly or, um, you know, there's some other deficiency in your, um, in, in your home, in the final analysis, there are very few kids that have gone to psychologists and said, and said, you know, I really feel deprived because the bathroom didn't have very nice right. tiles in it. <laughs> you know, and, and just uh, experientially, I mean, I've often witnessed um, children who come from, you know, middle class, lower middle class family being totally happy. And sometimes children from upper, upper middle, upper class families being totally miserable. I mean, I think yeah. it's often an experience that 
these children who are from low-income families can feel there's a sense of belonging, a sense of common mission, acceptance. Um, so I think that that's something that we do experience. I also wonder if the change in the father's brain might then filter over into maybe a change in in corporate structure and corporate way of going. Like maybe if this if these you know sort of maternal neurons are turned on, that the culture in which they go back into might start changing. I mean that's a utopian idea, but that also no, needs to change. It's really not utopian. It is what you're saying is happening right right now, and we can do. So let's talk about what is happening and what we can do. That's even more than that along these lines. So what is happening is that um, when companies offer people, um, uh, new employees, uh, an option to either have more time or more um, perks like money, um, increasing, uh, increasingly the most talented and gifted young people, they are the ones that want more time at home. They want more flexibility, both men and women do. Uh, women have always sort of like required that if they had once they had children, which is why you got the mommy track versus the you know the uh, the non mommy track type of phenomenon. Um, and but fathers, young men who want to become fathers are saying, you know, I I want I want my job to be forty hours a week or so. I um, and I want it to be flexible, and I don't want to be bothered at home all the time, or I want to be bothered at home, but then but then be able to work three days a week from home, um, and so on. So these are the new perks. These are the new benefits uh, that young millennials, especially in males, are discovering that previous males did not discover in other dire directions. However, there's something very important that needs to happen that I'm um, trying to work with uh, through through the, the work on policy levels that I'm doing um, is, and that is to get MBA programs to train um, not CEOs, but teams of CEOs. So with, uh, with the international, with the global economy, um, oftentimes there's a need for 24 seven uh, involvement. And you're, we're trying to push CEOs to be close to that 24 seven involvement, which is stressing them out, making them drink, making them have affairs and, um, and not allowing them to be connected with their families. Well, what I'm suggesting is that there be programs where we train three or four CEOs for a company to work together. So everybody, there can be somebody on call, but we, we have communication systems among them so that with equal power, but, but uh, coordinating it like a team does, uh, we, they are able to, um, to, to have not any one person stressed out, even as they handle international global responsibilities. So I know you uh, participated in the Staten Island Initiative for uh, Council for Men and Boys, and now you're making this effort to have a White House Council on Men and Boys. Is some of what you're trying to do teach skills to fathers and, and, and teach mothers and our culture why this is so critical, what's so important? I mean, it seems like men's lives are in the balance. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't seem like a small goal that yeah. we're really trying to tell men, look, we're growing out of this culture of being the hero about paying, you know, just paying for your children's educations and their life. We're growing out of that and we're going towards another direction. You need to develop and learn some skills in order to meet this new time. Yes. Is, is that some of what you're doing? Could you show us or tell us some of the skills that you, you might recommend sure. to these CEOs and to men and to mothers? 
Yes, so um, part of what I've done with the boy crisis is to sort of say, here are things you can do as an individual. Here's what you can do as a family, such as learning how to make sure family dinner nights don't become family dinner nightmares. Um, and you know how to structure a family dinner night so you can be uh, that everybody in the family can feel in e pluribus unum mode. That is each per, that's Latin for one from many. And so each person at the family dinner table can have his or her individuality discovered. Um, but the family unit uh, becomes a very powerful solidifying unit that's a facilitator to discover the, the many. Each of us as a as a different unique individual. Then to work on the school level about what schools can do. And I'm talking to the White House about developing a male teacher corps um, to be able to, um, to, uh, to hire male teachers, to, tra to train men to be teachers uh, so that um, boys don't go from female-only homes to female teacher-only schools. Um, and then we say, why do they um, fight, feel so attracted to a drug dealer or a gang leader uh, for a sense of identity? Um, so that's um, then also talking to the White House about developing father warrior programs. So in the old days, we trained boys to be warriors um, who were killed, at, who, whose job was to kill and be killed. Um, I'm suggesting that men of the future need to be trained to be to love and be loved. They also need to be to 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 retain the best of masculinity, which is not to be fearful of a lot of things and to be able to um, to have that postponed gratification and to have that discipline. So we need to, we have an opportunity now for the first time in history to combine the best of the old masculinity and the freedom to develop a new masculinity. Those are just two examples. So the Father Warrior Program, its goal would be to train boys in emotional intelligence along with girls and get boys and girls to be able to know how to hear and listen to each other. Right now, we've, we've in the last 50 years, we've sort of gone from the old battle of the sexes to a war in which only one side shows up. And women have been shooting the bullets and men have been putting their heads in the sand and hoping the bullets would miss. <laughs> and that's not a good communication system. Right. You know, I, I, I have to say that for me, psychology is about teaching people how to love and how to connect. And, Absolutely. What, and really what you're talking about is we need to be taught how to love. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we, we have this as a dream and we start our romantic relationships with love and we start our marriages with love and we have our children and we have love. But we don't know how to reinforce it and to keep it alive, love. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about, the kitchen table, the dinner table, this can be like the place where the family comes together and meets and that love is available here. There is a sense of connection. There's a mission to the dinner table at night. I, I could see that as part of the White House Council on Men and Boys, on family, that we're bringing, we're introducing the sacredness of the kitchen table, the dinner table, the coming together as a family without electronics, without technology. Yes. And that the parents are taught how to, you know, get the children to open up. Yeah, I think there's an art and a skill to that. When I was a teacher, I knew which children had parents that made them give full answers to questions rather than just give a yes or no answer to a question. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I think there's there's an art to engaging your children and and very important to get them to fully enunciate and explain what they're thinking at a moment and be patient enough to listen to it and follow up with that. 
Absolutely. And just like the the depth and the breadth of love and the experience of love, it isn't always, you know, candy and roses. It's it's so much more than that. It's so much more than than everything seeming perfect. You yes. know, everything being quote unquote right or, you know, the way it's supposed to be, the way that you see in media and stuff like that. I mean, I think there are more and more I, I've witnessed a couple more sort of popular shows and stuff like that, really addressing that you know, love isn't what they told us it was. It's so much more. And and I think, yes, we do need to learn the skills to be able to hold space for each other, to listen, to not take everything so personally, to know who each per- who you are inside and who the other is. Um, yeah, it's really important and it takes time. And this is, um, yes, falling in love is biologically natural. Sustaining love is biologically unnatural. And when I started looking at the boy crisis, I started to see that the boys that were in crisis mode were ones that fell into one of two categories. They were either dad-deprived boys who were products of divorce, or they were dad-deprived boys who, uh, whose mothers brought up uh, the children without having a father involved. And in those two, um, and, and, and so I started asking, well, on the divorce level, how if if so many of the dads in divorce don't have uh, a lot of involvement, what can be done? And two things can be done. One is to have equal shared parenting be part of the law. But another thing can be done, which is why can we prevent the divorce from happening to begin with, not by legislation, but by communication? Okay, then I dug into communication. Now, for the last 30 years, I've been doing couples communication workshops. I've just put the first workshop on Zoom, so it'll be available for a much less expensive price. And um, and we'll be, we'll be working to distribute that to poor communities so that it'll be available to everybody for nothing. Um, but that's, um, and so that's in process now. But what I learned that got me passionate about developing the couples communication workshops is that all human beings have a common Achilles heel. And that Achilles heel is our inability to handle personal criticism from a loved one without becoming defensive especially when that criticism is given badly. And most people perceive any comment that is, that is a, a request for a change of behavior or a request for a change of attitude from their partner as a criticism that's given badly. And so, yeah. so my work became, how do I retrain the brain um, or, or to, to deviate from the biological natural propensity to be defensive and to um, allow men and women or, or gay couples or parents and children to be able to hear each other in a way that drew the other one out and created a safe environment for them to be, to say whatever they needed to say, even if that involved a lot of criticism, even if it involved distortion, even if it involved exaggeration, even if it overstated the case, even if it was inaccurate. And so the couples communication workshop is um, very interestingly named similar to what similarly to what Nasima was just saying. It's called role mate to soulmate, and uh, because the, in the old days, like with my father, um, he just felt it was important to play his role well. Um, he never saw that. Um, listening to somebody, drawing them out, facilitating them 
was a good way of parenting. He felt it was important to, while I or my sister or brother were talking, to be able to, to make sure that if we had any Achilles heel at all, that he, had, he, he criticized it, pointed it out, reworked it to make sure we didn't fall, uh, fall, you know, uh, fall apart in life. Uh, that was his way of loving. It was called tough love, um, but it, it's and it's part of loving. And oftentimes mothers leave that part out. But dads also have to learn to make sure that 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 both sides of love are part of what the, they give their children. It's survival loving. You know, I think fathers, fathers loving was always, you know, kind of keeping in mind the survival of my children, not necessarily Absolutely. how I'm loving them today in this moment. But yes. I've got an eye on their survival. So no matter what they say to me, no matter what they, how they feel about my criticisms, I know what I'm doing. Yes, I'm going to get them through. I'm going to get them to the next level. I'll get them to marriage, to, to a safe job and, and all of that. And really that's, that's to, unnecessary at this point, isn't it? I really want, no, it's not unnecessary, but it's not the same. It's a, it's a balancing act now. Okay. For our parents, it was not a balancing act. You know, the Bible used to say, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And so today people grow up and say, well, my father hit me. I was abused. But if you reinterpret that physical hitting and you say, wait a minute, this was my dad's way of making sure that was, this was my dad's way of loving me. My father only hit me with a belt a couple of times, but the first time he did, he said, um, maybe it was the second time, whatever. Um, he said, this hurts me, Warren, more than it hurts you. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I know that, Dad. He said, what do you mean you know that? Because uh, I was about eight years old. And I said, because you you want to be as good a dad as you can be. And if I've done something wrong, that means you feel you failed. And he said, oh. Thanks. I think that was the second time he hit me. It was the last time he hit me because he knew I got it. Well, um, and, go ahead. I, I'm just um, struck by the loneliness of, of the old paradigm of fatherhood. Oh, my God. The you loneliness. Are so, it, it, you are so correct. There's nothing, there's hardly any word that describes fatherhood better in the old school fatherhood than loneliness because the, the way you, you know, you, you, you love somebody so deeply, you're willing to do things like hit them. Yeah. Um, and today, yeah. if you know, you, your dad hits you, the child's going to a psychologist and saying, my dad didn't love me, he, he was abusive. Well, he was abusive on one level. And also, and your dad, but your, your dad was also loving you on another level. And so let's understand both of those levels and teach the, the next generation of parents how to be able to raise children without being physically physical and, and abusiveness. But at the same time, let's recognize that the parents that did do that in their generation had a different intent than just being abusive. Yeah, and I like to point my clients to the, well, what ways did he love you? Well, what ways did was love shown? How can you feel love for him and his role? What yes, were what were his burdens? What were his deficits? So yes, you mean you might feel like he didn't really love you, but you don't know how he woke up every day to go to work for yeah. you, and, well, and and you might remember moments that oh wait a second yeah there were moments when he showed love for me, we did have connection we did have some rough housing whatever it was you know, totally agree with you. Um, there's a section in the Boy Crisis book that I really encourage uh, families to read which is um, the, the, what I do in workshops where I ask um, everyone to imagine what their father's um, 
what their father would have loved to have done if he could do anything he wanted to with his life. Um, and then I teach um, the, the, the people in the workshop how to, how, to, how to visualize what that might be, how to search for the glint in their father's eye that may have appeared not even ever since that they, that they noticed, but maybe they saw it in a picture of their mother and father on their honeymoon. And you know, what was, what's the hints that you learned that maybe your dad had a musical instrument that he used to play, used to sing in a choir, used to um, do something like being an artist or so on. And then that, and then just visualize that and then ask yourself, you know, is your dad still doing that as a way of making a living? Or if he's doing it as a way of making a living, has it become um, a routine that's no longer creative, that's no longer um, nurturing his imagination? Yeah. And so if that's the case, uh, what led that change to happen where your father gave up so much to raise you? And, and then tapping into that method of, of your father's love, that the very things that your dad did to love you disconnected him from loving you, which is what I called the father's catch 22. But we have to understand that to be, to be in touch with how much our fathers did love us. I love it. It's a beautiful exercise. I've often imagined like, what would my dad have done if he didn't have to be a lawyer and, you know, pay, pay the bills for 15 kids, you know, like what could he have done? He was a natural violinist, a natural musician. Um, and, and yet, you know, that mus- that instrument was up on a top shelf for 30 years. Mm, and, mm. you know, I didn't get to hear him play until, you know, he was in his 60s. We finally pulled it uh, down. You know, he retired, so we had some room. <laughs> but what a shame. What a tragedy. He had this ear. I, I could appreciate a gift that he had that I never fathomed when he yes. was raising us all those years. So and, I, I like this as an exercise. And we could do it with our mothers as well, right? I mean, we could imagine what would mom have been? Yes, yes. Mom, mom's in a different area. And w- the wonderful thing about moms um, is that we, for the last 30 years, we've, you know, when, when a middle or upper middle class um, person, woman has a child, uh, we usually say uh, the, the, the dinner conversations as we discover that she's pregnant are oftentimes, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to um, be, do you want to work full-time when the child is born? Or do you want to be full-time with the children? Or do you want to do some combination of both? And the fathers, you know, but when the child is born, oftentimes the father says, you know, well, I have three options too. You know, option one is I can be uh, full, I can work full-time. Option two is I can work full-time. Yeah. And option three is I can work full-time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and he, uh, but, or work overtime, or if he's, you know, or, or climb the corporate ladder to a higher degree, which is why in Japan, they have a, ga- a game called Kuroshi. Kuroshi uh, in Japanese means death at the desk or death from overwork. And so each of the children has a Kuroshi figure. And when that, and the job of the game is to climb the corporate ladder or climb some other ladder of success until you get to the top of the ladder. And the person who wins that Kuroshi game gets to commit suicide. Oh gosh. And it's the children's way of saying, we get what what that supposed success is that success is not power. That success, when I wrote the Myth of Male Power book, I started to see the degree to which so many people, once they had the freedom to ask, would I rather play that instrument that's on the top of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the shelf for 30 years, or would I rather uh, be an attorney uh, that makes more money? Uh, the attorneys, 
for example, um, more than 85% of them are say that they're unhappy. Yeah. Uh, only patent attorneys say that they're happy um, more frequently than the reverse. But which made more money? Um, the attorney 99% of the time rather than the musician. I just wanted to put in a in a plug. I know you were talking earlier about teachers more getting more male teachers into the classrooms, into the especially in young education. I think is really important. Another place where we need more men is in social work, mm. in therapy rooms, because I think it's so important. I mean, I really appreciate what Kevin does. I appreciate what what some of the other male therapists here do and what they can offer for young men who may not have had good male role models or a man to talk to about their problems. I know you've worked with some young boys, young men, and just kind of taken on that role. And I think, uh, you know, anyone listening, I think it's really important. I know more men are entering, uh, entering the field, but it has been a very woman dominant field. And I think it's time for more men to be in the therapy room and learning how to be good counselors. I'll I'll just speak from my experience. Absolutely. Yeah. From my experience, I, I came into this field because I just could, was biologically incapable of going into a corporate building and working in a corporate world and, and doing the traditional male kind of direction. It took me a while to get here. I came to this in my 40s. So, you know, you can do it at any age. But, uh, you know, it was by eliminating what I couldn't do. And so yeah. I recognized that I liked a male figure who mirrored me, who who listened to me in a way that no other male has done i said where did you learn to do that and he said i learned that in school (laughs) counseling school i like i want to learn how to do that and so what my work often with young men is just mirroring just giving them a platform to be heard and to listen to them and it's magic it's like wow i've never experienced this before so so i agree i think more men are coming into the field of social work and mental health counseling and psychology and things like this there are two very complex things here that really have to be worked on one is to be totally honest um, is that a very high percentage of social work programs really have a philosophy that is very anti-male they feel that men have been part of the power system that of male privilege they haven't seen the 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 musical instrument left on the top of the shelf for 30 years while the man um, they they see only that the male became that lawyer. He was more likely to make more money than the female lawyer. And they don't see that the, the making of money, that the, they don't see that, that, high pay, that, 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 that the road to high pay is a toll road. Doctor, and I have to interrupt you. We only have a minute left or even less. Um, so I get your point about that. We didn't get to talk about judges and divorce court and, yes. and the rights of, of fathers to their children, the importance of, to the children of being given equal custody. So there were so many topics that we, we could have talked about and that we can't go further into. I can't even ask my last question. I was going to give you the, the, the forum to just speak to our audience and say how important it is to the boys that they have this connection, uh, that they are being seen in a real way that they know that they're being seen and they're being mirrored. So I'm going to have to ask you to come back another time. We're going to have to uh, uh, bow out from here. Uh, But thank you so much for being here. The book is The Boy Crisis, Why Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. My guest has been Dr. Warren Farrell for the full hour. We will have to have you back. I hope you can come back. I look look very forward to that. I should just say, that a lot of people are enjoying that book on Audible. Um, so if, if, if your method of learning is listening, 
um, do it that way. And I would say for any of my clients who with children, and I have them, uh, you should listen to this book in your car with your wife. So Nasima, mm-hmm. take us out. Well, we'd like to thank you for listening, and we'd like to thank our affiliates for airing us The Positive Mind, uh, KACR 96.1, Alameda, California, KAOS 89.3, Olympia, Washington. And plus, thank you to KXCR 90.7, Florence, Oregon, and the others who've been picking us up weekly for your continued support. Our producer, Connie Shannon, our chief engineer, Jeff Brady. Contact us at tffpp.org. That's short for the Foundation for Positive Psychology with questions, comments, or suggestions for the show. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks again, Dr. Farrell. Absolutely. What a joy. Thank you.